0: Hi, I'm Steven and I'm Sneha and you're listening to Spilling, Spilling the, the Tea, tea with C-C-E. CCE.
1: This podcast features fellows at Hofstra University's Center for Pacific Engagement as they talk about a wide range of topics from current events to social movements as well as issues that affect our daily lives.
0: From healthcare to
1: mental health,
0: nothing is off the table. This podcast was created in spring 2020 to continue the conversations we had on campus in a virtual way and we're so happy to have you here, Spilling the Tea with us.
1: Even though Hofstra CCE is now back to running in person programming, we had such a positive experience with this podcast that it is now a permanent part of CCE operations.
0: Now, let's spill the tea.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Spilling the Tea with CCE. My name is Sneha Prabhu, and today we are here with a very special guest, Dr. Kelsey Leonard. Dr. Leonard, how are
2: you? Hello, good day. I'm really happy to be here with you. Very excited <clears throat> to be here. had a wonderful... Um, visit so far to Hofstra University. Now I would be
1: remiss if I didn't introduce all the amazing work that Dr. Leonard does. So Dr. Kelsey Leonard is a water scientist, legal scholar, policy expert, writer, and an enrolled citizen of the Shinnecock Nation. Dr. Leonard represents the Shinnecock Nation on the Mid-Atlantic Committee on the Ocean, which is charged with protecting America's ocean ecosystems and coastlines. She also serves as a member of the Great Lakes Water Quality Board of the International Joint Commission. Dr. Leonard has been instrumental in safeguarding the interests of the indigenous nations for environmental planning and building indigenous science and knowledge into new solutions for sustainable water and ocean governance. Now I've covered a good amount of what you do but tell us a little bit about yourself and your work.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here with you today and uh, for that wonderful introduction. So yes, I'm a water scientist and researcher. I'm based out of the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, Um, but I'm also an enrolled citizen of the Shinnecock Nation, and I feel like that is really the, the compass that guides my work, being both an Indigenous woman and a Shinnecock woman scientist who works to protect water, both freshwater and ocean ecosystems.
1: So what does being a member of the Shinnecock Nation mean to you?
2: Well, in our Shinnecock means people of the stony shore so I often am asked oh, how did you get into wanting to be a water scientist and how did you you know come to this path of, of career work that you do now and I often will say it's because of who I am as a Shinnecock person you know I think our ancestors really had this immense wealth of knowledge to call us Shinnecock and to say that if you're going to be a person who exists on this part of uh, Long Island and who who stewards and is cared for by these waters, that you you have to be a shore protector. You have to be someone who is of this shore and that this shore stewards you. And so for me, that's really what it means to be Shinnecock, is to be someone who cares for these shores, who cares for the water, who is really bonded in a loving relationship with the ocean. And what were you taught about
1: water and why are water rights so important?
2: So I don't think there was one moment or moments where you sort of have this education or instruction on what is water, you know, particularly as a Shinnecock person or even just in, in my life. I think I have had really unique opportunities to learn about different Cultural teachings around water about how different cultures around the world connect to water, how we as Shinnecock people connect to water, and it's so beautiful how you know people from all different parts of the world have these these ways of being and existing on this planet that build a bond with water. You know, for me throughout my life, that's been um, swimming. You know, in the ocean, it's been canoeing kayaking, it's been going out and clamming and harvesting from from the water. It is sometimes it's also just visiting with the water just going and sitting and and being in the presence of water and then later on in the research and science that I've been able to do it's been working with other water protectors out in the world and seeing how they restore their connection to water seeing how they act for the water how they pray for the water how they protect water uh, working in, particularly in the Great Lakes region with uh, grandmothers and others who are water walkers individuals who've walked through. Throughout the Great Lakes, all of the Great Lakes, multiple times. Um, one grandmother in particular, uh, Josephine Mandamanba, uh, Anishinaabe grandmother from uh, Wakwamakon Unceded Territory, she was a great mentor and friend of mine, and she just provided this immense amount of knowledge and presence about how I'll tell this story, in fact, of, in, in how I think about water today. As a water scientist, we're often asking questions about water quality and water quantity and questions about how do we make decisions about water. And one of the questions I had asked to Grandmother Josephine Ba at one point was, what threats do you think exist to the water? And she paused for a moment and she said back to me, she said, there's not, there's not a question of what threats or what water is threatened? She said, all water is threatened. And the question that we actually have to ask is, what are those threats? Not, not even whether or not it's threatened, but that recognizing that in the world that we live in today, in the crises that we exist in, uh, the climate crisis, um, the social justice crises we see, that these threats are ever-present and pertinent. It's not a question that they exist, but to really say what are they and how can we work to do something about them. That is truly amazing.
1: I was also curious, what does it mean? You've said this multiple times, but what does it mean to grant water legal personhood?
2: Well, thank you for that question. It often stems from a TED Talk that I gave in 2019 that talks about, well, what would it look like if lakes and rivers had legal rights or the same rights as humans? And its it stems from a body of law called earth law. Uh, sometimes it's called ecocentric law, but it's an ecocentric approach to law that recognizes the inherent rights of natural entities to exist, thrive, and flourish. And that's thats ultimately, it's this process or mechanism within the law to recognize the legal personality of a natural entity so that that entity can have standing within a court of law to bring a claim for the violation of its rights or harms done to it, such as man-made or human-induced pollution. Uh, Because currently, for many natural entities around the world, that does not exist. They are not seen as legal persons under the law. And therefore, you can't make a claim for the destruction of a river or for the damage to a mountain. And uh, speaking of your TED talk,
1: you also asked the question, who is justice for? I wanted to turn that question to you and ask if you think that answer can change.
2: Well, I definitely think the answer can change. I really advocate for folks to to develop solutions to our pressing social and planetary challenges that are localized and context-specific. So I do anticipate that the question would change depend on who's asking and who's answering. But ultimately, I ask that question because oftentimes I've seen in the environmental governance space that questions around who is justice for are often geared towards providing justice to humans. It's not seen, justice is not seen as something that should be guaranteed or should be an inalienable right to the natural world as well. And so for me, I think justice is for everyone, and that everyone includes the planet, includes all life on this planet of which human beings are are a part of, um, but it also recognizes that justice can and should be for nature.
1: What are some other organizations that you've worked with to help push for this change?
2: Yes. So there are so many wonderful organizations working in this space and other change makers. And uh, it's definitely not something that I created. I'm just one cog in in the larger machine trying to defend the planet. Um, But some of these organizations include Earth Law Center, uh, as well as the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, uh, Indigenous Environmental Network. The United Nations has a program called the UN Harmony with Nature Program. Movement Rights is another organization. And there's just so many more around the world that are emerging and contributing to uh, these activities for Earth Law. And also it's not only organizations, but individuals as well. I find sometimes at the grassroots level, individuals are the ones who are making these changes um, and pushing them forward, particularly often um, Indigenous-led change makers.
1: And what are some of the ways in which we can help protect water rights and support Indigenous populations?
2: Well, the first thing I, I tell anyone often that ask that question is to know where your water comes from, to know your local water. Many people take for granted the privilege it is to be able to turn your tap and have water come out and have it be of you know sufficient quality to be able to drink it or use it for bathing or what-have-you and they often don't know where that water comes from who's the you know the water operator that has to make sure that that water is treated properly so that it can come through your piped system sometimes even on Long Island you know it's also really important to know that not everybody has a piped water system they well they probably have piped water but what I mean by that is they don't have water that's coming from a water treatment facility. Um, they may be on groundwater. And so really thinking too about, okay, am I on a ground? Where's the source for my water? Am I on a groundwater? Well, am I drawing water that well, either way, I'm probably drawing water from uh, the Long Island aquifer that is, you know, one of the most um, beautiful aquifers and unique aquifer systems in the world. Or, you know, if you live in other parts of the world, are you drawing water from a river or a lake? You know, where does your water come from? I think is, the, is one of the the key questions that folks need to ask because knowing that allows you to restore your connection to water and allows you to be more appreciative and thankful and give gratitude for where that water is coming from. And then outside of that, I think it's also people getting out into nature and being able to just go and visit with water. Like sometimes I'll ask uh, students or other folks I'm in conversation with, like, what's the closest water to you? And they kind of look a little puzzled. They're like, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, is it your rain barrel outside your house? Or is it, is there a local creek or a river nearby? Like for Long Island, it might be you have a local bay system or you are like near the Atlantic Ocean or you're on the ocean side or you're on the Long Island Sound side so really trying to ask yourself you know where's the water that's closest to you and have you visited with it lately and I think you know knowing where your water comes from in terms of the drinking water that you uh, use or the household water that you use and then also being able to go and visit with the waters local to you really is that first step in being able to restore your connection to water and that's how we get people to protect water and advocate for water rights because you can't protect you don't know and you can't at least you can't do it effectively you won't have any vested interest you won't understand the value you won't um have you won't see yourself reflected in the laws and the rights that you're creating and protecting and that really is how everyone can work towards advancing water rights is to understand that this is a finite resource on our planet it's not um a renewable source it's something that we easily can lose and not have
1: definitely i think we all need to reconnect with water in some way the other, and I was curious to see. You definitely advocate for people to connect with water and understand like how it relates to them. What is one of the most significant ways
2: you've got someone to reconnect with water and be a better advocate for water rights? Oh, that is such an excellent question. Well, there's two there's two things I'll say that I I've, I've really loved, and it's actually the first one is is not something that I designed or did, but I just love being a part of it and like the small way that I am. Um and that's the junior water walkers program mm-hmm. so it is a program that was started by an elementary school teacher named peter cameron out of thunder bay ontario who also had had conversations with josephine mandamin ba and the water walkers about creating this program for elementary school students and it's now in classrooms around the world probably about i think maybe 100 or 200 different classrooms peter you'll have to uh, correct me if i'm wrong um, but you can also find more information about the junior water walkers program online um, they've got a google site. And so you can go and interact there. Um, And it's been really great to be able to um, share videos with them. I was just at the World Water Conference um, at the UN a few weeks ago, and we got to do sort of a a video for the junior water walkers from that conference and being able to share with them the ways in which this future generation of young people are going to be able to be those water leaders and those water thinkers. That's been really a great honor to uh, an example of how to connect to water or how we're continuing to inspire people to connect to water. And then I think the other um, activity that's been really fun recently was I worked with an international museum out of Hamburg, Germany called the Mark Museum to, along with other scientists and academics, we formed a water think tank and and grassroots climate activists. We formed a water think tank in collaboration with the curators at the museum to um, create an exhibit called Water Messages, um, which highlights all the different ways in which communities around the world, from Shinnecock Bay here on the island to Lake Chad in Africa, to the Atatato River in South America, all these different communities of of relating to water are highlighted in the exhibit, including like the uh, Mississippi River impacted by the Dakota Access Pipeline that's also featured. And so that was a really interesting and fun opportunity to work with an exhibit where people are going to come into this museum of ethnology and ethnography and archaeology and be able to see how for thousands of years people have interacted with water, but also how we're con- we're still thinking about the way in which we connect to water and share messages to from water. And so, um, and just to know that there's you know a whole cohort, I guess, or public that's going to be coming through that museum to see that exhibit that will learn and hear something new and work to restore their connection with water. That was a really cool opportunity.
1: As I mentioned before, you are a professor, mm-hmm.
2: and I am also a college student.
1: What are some ways which you have told? Your college students to be a better advocate?
2: Mm. Well, you know, I think everyone has their gifts and their passions, and so I really encourage, you know, students or, or anyone who's in this stage of, of learning and growing in their life to think about okay, what are my passions? What are the gifts that I bring to the table? For some of us, it's, it, it's being artists. It might be that you're an excellent writer, podcaster, that you are really, you know, excited about reading, whatever your your gift is. Maybe you're an athlete. Each of us has things that we are gifted with, that we love, that we're passionate about. And if you take that and think about how can I apply this to the context of water or to restoring my connection with water, there's usually a really great path forward where you're able to do something that's within your scope as a human being and that also you can be passionate about. And that's where you often. Often see the most success because the road is challenging the road to water protection the road to planetary healing is not an easy path be- with everything that we have facing us with our current climate crisis so making sure that you are engaging in these justice movements for planetary healing by Empowering your own passions and gifts and applying those is really how you're going to have the strength to persist
1: And what are some everyday things that we can do? You touched on this earlier, too But what are some everyday things that we could do to better support the water?
2: Mm. It's an excellent question and I think it really coming back to what I shared earlier is important to be Conscious of your decision making of where your water comes from of how you use water there Definitely is a strong importance around reduction of your household water consumption that that's never a bad thing to do Um, it's always what would be good but when we think about the sort of the magnitude of the scale of the water issues that we see globally we also have to use potentially our purchasing power our civic power our voting power to also change governance structures and laws as well as changing how corporations act with those individual powers to shift their use and consumption patterns of water or how they regulate water because that ultimately is where we as individuals can have power but have to really influence these other sectors that have more impact on the overall health of water in our planet. So that's something that, that we need to see. And so voting, you know, you're, you're voting, your civic power, your voting power, thinking about uh, as we come up on a new uh, presidential election in a few years, who are the candidates that are thinking about water? Who are the candidates that are going to put forward an environmental or climate change platform and, and, and deliver? Purchasing power is, do you need the next iPhone that just drops or can you hold? out and, you know, use your current phone for as long as you can because, you know, every time you consume a new piece of technology, it's not only about the water that is required to produce that new piece, but it's also about the water that's going to be required to manage the waste of your old tech. And so I I just wish that more folks could think about the totality of the life cycle of their use patterns because it's not just about what you consume or what you purchase, but it's also about Your waste. And that's really the future of our environmental and climate crisis. Not even the future. The future is now in the sense that we have a waste problem around our planet. And oftentimes the way in which we process waste is very demanding of water resources. And that's um, definitely of high concern in the work that I do.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's definitely a good place to end off. But is there any last thing you'd like to leave us with?
2: I don't think so. This has been so wonderful and thorough and I'm just really excited. that folks are having these conversations because at the end of the day that's where you start you just have to have a conversation with folks who are interested but also maybe folks who aren't interested just just be out there having conversations being critical thinkers asking questions and hopefully that gets us to a further step forward in our healing process
1: well that's all we have for this episode of spilling the tea with cce Again, I'm here with Dr. Kelsey Leonard. Dr. Leonard, where can we find you?
2: Uh, You can find me at KelseyLeonard.com, on most socials, at Kelsey T. Leonard, and also on the University of Waterloo website. All
1: right. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening.
0: If you are interested in continuing the conversation or learning more about Hofstra Center for Civic Engagement, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Hofstra CCE, or visit our website at hausford.edu cce.
1: The beautiful music you've heard in this episode was written and composed by Ethan Tauber.
0: The song even features the chords C, C, and E.
1: We hope you join us again to discuss combating more of our world's most pressing challenges. And thank you for helping us spill the tea.